Speaking of awesomeness, you have the coolest name ever. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to braintreepayments.com slash javascriptjabber. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 164 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from sunny, desert-like Provo, Utah. Amy Knight. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to make a quick mention. Um, you know we did JS Remote Conf. I am now doing Ruby Remote Conf, so if you're into Ruby, go check it out, rubyremoteconf.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Spike Brem. Hello, hello. My name is Spike, and I'm an engineer at Airbnb. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit more about what you do? Sure. I'm a web engineer. Uh, I've been at Airbnb for the last four years or so, and I mostly build things with JavaScript and Ruby. And recently, I've been trying to figure out how to share code between the client and the server, something that some people call isomorphic JavaScript. Some people hate that word, but basically trying to figure out how to, how to share an application on both sides of the wire. So I do that, and then I also play some bass guitar on the weekends, and uh, I think that's about it. Very nice. Now, four years at Airbnb, that's like forever in developer career time, right? Yeah, it's been a long time. So we brought John to talk about Render. That's R-E-N-D-R. That's right. Do you want to kind of explain the idea behind it? You mentioned isomorphic JavaScript, but... Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Render is an open source JavaScript library that we created at Airbnb. Uh, You can check it out on GitHub if you like. It's github.com slash render.js slash render. And basically, it's, it was one of the first open source isomorphic web frameworks. So basically, what it lets you do is it lets you take a single page app and render it on the server side. So it's built on Backbone and Handlebars. Uh, you can basically build a Backbone, Handlebars, single page app. Uh, but then it also has some components that run on Express. And Node.js. And so the whole idea of it is that you can 
basically server render any deep link of your single page app. Any page of your single page app would be fully rendered on the server, but once the page loads and the JavaScript initializes and all that, it just turns into a typical single page app, and it's all client rendering from there on out. It's it's really interesting. So basically, if you've built your app as a single page app on Backbone JS, you can just pull it down to the server and have it render there instead. Uh, that's right. Yeah, it's and really that simple. It's. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if I sound a little incredulous, but no, yeah. no, you, sh- you should be incredulous. I mean, it's there. It's not quite that simple because you have to build it in a particular way. So whenever you're building, whenever you're writing JavaScript that is isomorphic or can be run in multiple environments. You have to be really careful because you don't want to just say like, you know, window dot whatever, you know, document dot body. You have to be careful which like global objects you access in certain spots because you could accidentally blow something up if you're running that on the client or the server. So render basically provides a little bit of structure to your app and the application folder, like the directory structure is kind of based. It's like a hybrid of a Rails app and a backbone app, uh, which makes sense because it's like server and client, but. It provides a few like basic building blocks that you can build your app on. And the first are routes. So routes just map URL patterns to like, controllers and actions. And then render also provides a controller. And controllers basically just specify how to fetch data for the given page. And these controllers are, and the routes are run both on the client and the server. And so all they do is, like for example, the, the example app that ships with the repo is basically a little GitHub app that uses the public GitHub API to just list, you know, show off different projects and whatnot. So in the project or like the repo show controller action, the only responsibility of that controller is to specify what the data is. Uh, so basically which models or which collections to fetch. And so render also provides a, a model base class and a view base class. And these are both subclasses of backbone model, backbone view. And they just make it more simple to handle the fact that your your app will be rendered both on the server and the client and will will handle uh, fetching data in a way that uses the same kind of patterns, same semantics on both sides of the wire. So maybe a uh, more basic question to back up a little bit. I'm somewhat new to programming. And so when I started programming, I started doing Rails, which, you know, you're rendering things on the server, but then I start seeing like all of these JavaScript frameworks coming out. So you're starting to do more on the client. And now it's like we're going back to the server, but for the page load. So maybe explain why the back and forth. That's a really good summary of the way the web has progressed over the last decade or so, right? Everything used to be purely rendered server side. Uh, that's the way that, you know, web browsers initially worked. And then as web browsers got more powerful, and CPUs got more powerful, the JavaScript runtimes kept getting faster. And we kind of saw this the second generation of browser wars between Chrome and Firefox. And IE has been actually catching up, but their JavaScript runtimes have been getting faster and faster and faster. And there's been all these new features, these new features of the web platform. So all the HTML5 stuff, you know, local storage and push state and all these, you know, tens and tens of different features that all put together provide a more of a, a real like application platform for the web, whereas the web used to be just a collection of pages. So as we've seen the browsers evolve, you've been able to do more and more with JavaScript. And people have started to build these full apps just in JavaScript. At Airbnb, we went down that route for sure. When we discovered Backbone and Handlebars and a lot of these tools, we started building these really thick client, single-page apps 
And we did it for a few reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is because we just could. <laughs> as like front-end engineers, as JavaScript people, we're like, oh my god, this is so cool. We can like build this whole app just in JavaScript. And it's, it, it is a kind of a nice development model because as you're building things with more interaction, more rich interactions, more complicated interactions, it doesn't make a lot of sense to split your code and split that feature between, for example, Ruby on the server side and JavaScript on the client. I mean, you've probably written on a lot of code before that you embed some maybe data attributes in the HTML on the Ruby side and then in JavaScript you pull them out. And there's just kind of, it's kind of a broken development model really for building rich user interfaces when it's split between these different languages, one on the server, one on the client. And so that's part of what made full JavaScript applications really popular because you can have all of your views, all of your templates and, and all that all on the client side. And then it's a really nice way of building an app because you can have a, a REST API, right? Some sort of JSON API that you deal with. And that's a really nice, clean separation of concerns. So single page apps became all the rage. And we saw a lot of libraries pop up and frameworks pop up like Backbone and Angular and Ember and Sprout Core. And there's so many. It's kind of a joke that every JavaScript engineer, every front end engineer, once they kind of reach a certain level of maturity or experience, maybe you know, kind of sophomore level engineers go write their own MVC framework because they can. And so we kind of saw an explosion of that. But the reason that things are moving back to the server side is there's kind of a few related reasons, but basically we're realizing that it's very valuable to be able to render markup, render HTML on the server side, because the alternative, like the just the typical single page app approach is to basically serve a blank HTML page from the server with like an empty placeholder div. And then when the JavaScript app initializes on the client side, it'll generate HTML and stick that HTML in that div, uh, and there's your app. But that means you're basically serving up blank HTML pages. And so the first reason that we started looking into moving back to the server is SEO reasons, because we were doing all these weird hacks where in Ruby, we would like kind of copy our templates and try to get the same semantic markup and content on the server as was rendered in the client and try to keep them up to date and everything for the search engines to crawl us. So I hear this argument. I'm definitely very much on the, the other side. I, I believe in rendering on the client where it belongs. But um, I also, that wasn't a biased statement at all. Well, no, I, there are some huge advantages that maybe I can go into later. But so you say you need to render this content for SEO. Why do you need to render content for SEO? Because it seems like if a user's logged in, they're going to get stuff that's personal to them. So there doesn't need to be any SEO. Like, I don't want Google searching my Gmail account because I don't want Google logging into my Gmail account, right? Yeah, but what right. about something like Airbnb where you've got a room in a city, maybe in a specific neighborhood where somebody's going to want to stay? You know, they, they want that indexed. Right. So why not generate that and just serve it statically? I mean, like, what is, what's the component that must be done dynamically? Uh, I think it, it is a good point that if your app is completely behind a login, then the SEO is not a concern for you. Well, not uh, not that it's completely behind a login, but generally the stuff that's dynamic is stuff that's specific to a user or that's specific to a search, which a search yeah. engine isn't going to be typing in searches on your site. They might, like, anyway, so I'll let sure. you go on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. So if you were to look at our listing page or our search page, we, we do render them server-side for the SEO reasons, but... 
we want them to be interactive experiences. And the search pages may be more a better example. It's more interactive. As you browse, you know, you, you change your different search filters, you pan around the map, you interact with the different things, you paginate through results. It's all like dynamically updating the URL using push state and doing all sorts of other kind of rich UI things. And so at that point, you're kind of living in both worlds where you're starting out rendering a fairly static page on the server, but then you also want that to be a rich dynamic experience for the user. And that's, I think that's a weird limbo to be in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure because like if I'm interacting with something, if I'm putting in data, that's something that a search engine isn't going to be doing. So it makes sense for that to just be done on the client. But I, I mean, I guess I could see cases where it's not intuitively obvious how to have the dynamic part on a page that you're serving statically. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times, like even on our, our listing page, most of the page is pretty static. But once you start to input dates and, and, you know, interact with the buttons and whatnot, that becomes a fairly rich dynamic experience. And so we have to choose if we want to go full client side of that feature which is a better development experience because you can have your templates and all that stuff rendered in the client. Like I would much rather be able to render client side for those rich features or, but then you, do you duplicate that on the server or do you just do kind of a halfway approach where it's like server rendered and then you just do a bunch of silly, dumb manipulation with jQuery. So I think that's, that's where it starts to get painful when you're, you're kind of going, you're bridging that divide between a static page that then becomes dynamic as users interact with it. I really like the waterfall graph that you used in your presentation, so we definitely should link to that. And I don't know if now would be an okay time to try to explain it a little bit. For sure. Yeah. Right, so uh, SEO was the first thing that I mentioned, with the first reason we were interested in this approach. But what really became apparent to us as the reason why we should be doing this is performance. And Twitter has a really good blog post about this. I think it's around 2012 when, you know, Twitter used to be uh, they used to have the hash bangs in the URL back in the day. So like uh -huh. twitter.com slash uh, hash bang, then like, you know, someone's username or something. And that was really cool. I mean, for, for all of us that were watching at the time, we're like, man, they, they're doing client-side rendering and it's like fetching for the API. That's so cool. And it was cool. Like once you got that page loaded, you could really speed around and click on links and it's a very dynamic experience. But what they did, Twitter spent like, a year and 40 engineers basically rewriting all of that to render server-side instead. And the reason they did that is for performance. And they had this metric that was called time to first tweet, which basically is uh, how long does it take, for example, clicking on a link to a Twitter page from Google and actually being able to see that first tweet rendered on the page. And it turned out that time to first tweet was really, really poor for client-side rendered apps because basically... The first thing that happens when the browser starts to download that page is, you know, it downloads that skeleton HTML page. So the page, you know, without the real content in there, just a placeholder for the content to be inserted. And then the browser will find a script tag and it downloads the JavaScript. And then it evaluates the JavaScript and parses it. And then, and only then, because they're using the hash bang. And if you may recall that the, the hash bang, it's not part of HTTP spec at all. It's just kind of a hack. So that hash never even gets sent to the server. So once all that JavaScript is downloaded and evaluated, then it looks at the URL and figures out which API endpoint to call. And then it calls that, you know, you wait a few hundred milliseconds for that to return. And then finally that returns and you can render your HTML and the user will see the content. 
And that's a lot of steps to happen. Whereas if you just render on the server side, as soon as that HTML has been streamed to the browser, the user can see it and interact with it. So that, I do want to point out that the case you're talking about there is the case where the person has never visited the site before, right? And oh, so not they're, necessarily. they're visiting it for the first time and the browser has to download all of that because none of it's in cache or they're not using any of the cache mechanisms that are available. Sure. Yeah. That can be true. I, I don't know if it is always true. We found that, that you can't really rely on caching for a number of reasons. Like sometimes there's weird proxies that get involved for the user and, and screws up caching. And also, uh, for us, we deploy 10 or 20 times a day. So the chance that you hitting a cached bundle is not that high. The cache hit isn't that high. Okay. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. But like when you're trying to really, if, like if you're thinking about the success of your app, of your website, you really want to capture the first, the, the user's first interaction with your, with your app. That's like the most important one, right? People ha don't have any loyalty yet to you, so that's when you need to grab them. And just to finish the Twitter anecdote, they found that they reduced the time to first tweet by five times, so 500% by going back to server rendering. So that's pretty significant. So does that affect the way that you can scale? Because it seems like that's the trade-off, is that if I don't have to do as much processing on the server, then I don't need as many servers to serve stuff up. Yeah, for sure. It could. It could, although I don't think that typically like web servers and basically rendering HTML and Ruby, for example, I don't think that tends to be the biggest bottleneck. Right. Uh, it's usually the database load or kind of more of the API tier. But, I mean, that for sure, it would there would be less computation happening on the server for client-side rendering. Right, fair enough. And I guess if you are targeting like really terrible devices like Android 2.3, like I could totally see where a server-side render is going to be faster. Yeah, and, and that's a great point because on mobile, it's this, this issue is like super exacerbated because one, like you mentioned, is low-power de devices because they, they just don't have a lot of CPU power to parse and evaluate that JavaScript, which can take several hundred milliseconds just to like evaluate, you know, a couple hundred kilobyte file. And then also there's really high latencies on mobile and really low bandwidth. And so if, if you look at the best practices for mobile web performance from Google, from like Ilya Grigoric and, and Steve Souders and those guys, uh, it's all about reducing the number of HTTP requests before the user can see your content. So if you have like several, uh, several JavaScript files and then an API request or two, like that really adds up to a painful, a painful amount on a mobile device. And you just kind of sit there seeing a spinner. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen like really poor implementations of client side code. I've seen people do it really, really badly and it really creates a negative user experience. But I've also seen it done really well that creates a really great user experience. Yeah. So the moral yeah, of the story is try it out on your app and see. Uh, yeah, I think so. Although you, I would try it out on maybe a, an experimental app because if you're going to go all in with the isomorphic approach, it does enforce a lot of constraints on the way that you build. Uh, for better or worse. So I would have to say those constraints are generally good though. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can pull up a point that you think has been really bad, but to me, it seems like it leads to better abstraction. Like you were talking about where if something isn't cross platform or cross browser or cross node and browser, you have to tease it out and focus on logic that then becomes more testable, more universal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I do think it, in the long run, it's, it's a good constraint for those reasons that you mentioned, but it's a hard, it's kind of a paradigm shift for people who aren't used to it. So you have to break some bad habits sometimes, you know. 
Yeah, like uh, you have to write in vanilla JS, which no everybody uses that word, but nobody knows what it means. You yeah, know? I don't really know what you mean exactly by that because it could mean a lot of different things. Well, like you have to write more in actual JavaScript instead of assuming the browser or assuming Node. Like you have to actually become better at the language of JavaScript rather than the vendor implementations of JavaScript. For sure. Yeah, there, there's kind of a lower common denominator thing you have, to, you have to deal with. I mean, there are some shims and things you can use. Uh, so one thing that, one tool that makes this all really possible and really easy are the build tools like Browserify and Webpack. So we've got a lot of experience with Browserify and it's a really cool feature of Browserify that not many people are aware of. And there's actually a, it, it'll support a kind of proprietary field that you can add in your package.json. So let's say that you were going to create some sort of reusable module. I like to use, and as an, as an example, if you're trying to create a, co a cookie module, so some sort of module that its only responsibility is to set a cookie, and you want that to work both on the client and the server, where you know the actual implementation for setting a cookie on the client or the server are like wildly different, right? On the server, you're setting an HTTP header. On the client, you're just modifying document.cookie. But uh, in both cases, the way that you serialize cookie string is the same. So it's a good example of something to abstract out. And with Browserify, if you were to create a module called setCookie, or you can look at the one that I've created on NPM called set-cookie, what you can do is you can actually swap out implementations between client and server. So there's a field in your package.json called browser. And the browser field can be a simple string. And if it's a simple string, you can basically say, for the browser implementation of this module, use this other file. Or it could be more, it could be an object and you could swap out specific files. So basically what you can do is you can export a single public API for your module and then under the hood provide different implementations for Node.js versus for the browser. And that's really, really powerful because that means that each module that you use to compose your app can have its own kind of like forking logic, its own branching logic determining what's browser versus client. And so if you compose these modules together, it becomes fairly straightforward to build an app that can run on both sides with just a little bit of glue between them. So I'm still having trouble with the exact case where you'd want something like this, because it seems like if you have a backbone front end or some other single page app and you move that rendering to the back end with your single page app, don't you still need the back end for your original application to be running? What, uh, what exactly are you eliminating by doing this, other than the front-end rendering? Yeah, so you, you're not really eliminating anything. You're really just adding another step. <laughs> so, like, I like to think of... Um, I wish I could show some diagrams on a podcast, but I like to think of the the node rendering as just another rendering target. Mm -hmm. So you, you can render for the browser, you can render for the server, but in, in either case, there's a fairly clean separation between your API, which is providing JSON, basically, and then whatever HTML gets generated. And so in the client, in a typical single page app, you have that really clean separation and you can maintain that with the server rendering. So for us, for our render apps, we have a Rails API that's providing all the JSON and it's the same Rails API that we used for just pure client side apps. But now the server and the client can talk to that API. Gotcha. So who gets the sense. statically rendered page and who gets the dynamically rendered page? Yes. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, both. So basically, as an example, you could you could check out m.airbnb.com. That's our mobile web page, our mobile web app. And basically, if you were to view source on that, any page 
that you can hit, like any search query, any listing page, if you hit that directly from the server, it'll return that full HTML. But then okay. once it gets bootstrapped on the client side, once that page loads, it'll intercept the clicks. And then subsequent clicks will just, it'll just be a single page app. So I think the, maybe the easiest way to think about it is it's just a single page app that also has the ability to server render that first page load. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, I think so. So here's a question that I have. So it seems like what you're saying is when I visit one of these pages, like if you give me a link to the page, it's going to render everything about that link on the page, and then I'm going to be able to click on it, and then from that point, it's now a dynamic page, right? Yeah, exactly. So we're not in the cycle of like hitting the server every single time. We're just using the server for that initial page load to reap the benefit and then... Now, if I were to try to do this in Angular, you mentioned earlier you don't really like Angular, but if I were to try to do this in this in Angular, one thing that I'd be concerned with is it would be difficult to reconstruct the state of the page. Mm-hmm. And maybe it wouldn't. Maybe I just haven't tried it, and so so it seems like it would be difficult. But intuitively, it seems like it'd be difficult to reconstruct the state of the page so that when I click on something, my click handler is already attached. And that, that sort of deal. So how did you overcome that problem, or was it not a problem? You've got a good intuition there. That's one of the big problems that render solves. That was the, the hairiest problem, probably. Because just as you say, like, when the server... So normally when you do client-side rendering, you kind of, like, start with a view, and then you get HTML from it, right? Like, you start with maybe a hierarchy of views, some sort of nested hierarchy, and then each produces some HTML. But when the server renders, that happens on the server. It sends a bunch of HTML to the browser, and then once your JavaScript app initializes, that DOM is already there. And rather than like throwing it all out and replacing it, what you want to do is you want to reattach to it. So take what's there and basically reconstruct your view hierarchy on top of it. Uh, it would be simpler to just throw it out and regenerate it, but then bad things can happen because what if someone started typing in a form field or stuff like that? Because there is state in the DOM. So what we have to do is is basically inspect the DOM, look at the DOM, find out which view is associated with it, find out which model class, model ID, which collection is associated with each, and then it uh, the process that I've called it is hydration. So it basically rehydrates that markup and attaches all the views to it and the click handlers and make sure that this dot model points to the right object and all that kind of stuff. So that took some work, but this is a good time to plug React because React makes this uh, a lot easier. And React does this out of the box. And so React wasn't around when I started working on Render, but if it was, uh, that's what I would have used. And you can actually use React now with Render. But there's a lot of things that are special about React, and one of them is that virtual DOM, and it's diffing. And so what happens is if you generate a bunch of React, a markup using React on the server, and then you hand it to the client, then you tell React, you point React to that, that DOM and you basically tell it to render. Because of its DOM diffing algorithm that it uses for the virtual DOM, it'll render that whole React component tree in memory in the virtual DOM. Then it'll diff it with what's actually there and it'll mutate it if it needs to and it won't if it doesn't. And long story short, React basically fixes this problem by design. Okay, so is React then relying on the event delegation, so it's just listening on document.body. It's not listening on individual elements for its clicks. I don't really know much about React, so 
Forgive me if that's just ignorant and I don't understand how it works at all. I don't know the answer. I imagine it does some delegation. I mean, delegation is definitely way bueno. Like, I don't think there's any <laughs> downside to it. But I just, I know that a lot of frameworks still today will directly attach things in some cases rather than use delegation. But I, I don't know. I guess the big ones probably all delegate. I, I would think it does that. Well, and so it they, seems like a lot of the other frameworks, like Angular 2, the upcoming version of Ember, they're adopting a lot of the approaches that came out in React. Absolutely. Which I, I, I find def- to be exciting. Yeah, totally. Because the whole web's going to come up in quality because of that. So I was once watching a presentation on Amber JS, which is a Smalltalk implementation in JavaScript. And this guy was a Smalltalk guy, and he was talking about this awesome experience where he could actually have a client that was u- using the, the client side of an app, like a desktop app, and there could be an error on the server, and he would be able to go in, fix the code, and then tell the client to, you know, click the button again. And even though there was a, like, an error state, the code was, it was all super functional, so none of the state was, like, in the code. It was all separate. I, I didn't entirely understand, but that the point was that an error on the server could be resolved while it was still running. And I think that the idea of having JavaScript where it's so functional that the state of the DOM isn't dependent on the code, like maybe one day we could get to that point where we can be live updating, live debugging clients or something. Maybe that's a little far out there. (laughs) <laughs> but whoa dude <laughs> but, well there, there was uh, like sure. a ted talk or something where a guy was actually had a like a prototype implementation of this too so that that's kind of where my mind is going that's interesting i mean i i think related to that is what's so cool about the virtual dom whether it's react or the other implementations of that is that the dom is basically one way right it treats it as something that's downstream from the state so you never you never have to like go look at the dom to find the state which is something that I always found myself doing in backbone apps is like, you look, oh, does this have this class? What is this data attribute? You know, you're kind of doing that two-way synchronization, which uh, is a painful thing. So one thing that I am wondering about a little bit is if you are in render basically building or serving rendering fully formed HTML, are you using components out of Express? Because Backbone and some of these other libraries, they rely heavily on the DOM. And so since there is no DOM in Node.js, are you just creating kind of your own funky little sort of DOM and then rendering that and then sending that back up the line? Or how does that work? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I wanted to avoid a DOM on the server. There are people who use a DOM on the server. So JS DOM or Pan and JS are, I mean, they're like you can server render an Angular app by having a headless browser, for example. Mm-hmm. But yep. Uh, DOM is, the conventional wisdom is that DOM is slow and it's kind of an unnecessary dependency. So basically I just do, do string based templating on the server with handlebars was my okay. first approach because handlebars, it just generates a string of HTML and that can be used on the client or the server. And then we do use express for all of the HTTP stuff and render it ships as a express app that you can mount onto another express app. It's kind of a neat feature of Expresses that you can like mount these apps onto each other. But so it basically just does string based templating and avoids the DOM on the server entirely. Okay. So will you explain 
what do you mean exactly you mount it on top of another app? Do you mean like such that it accesses the JSON API kind of thing? or In this case, so you know how Express has middleware? Yeah. And you, you can basically mount a middleware at a certain URL path? Yeah, yeah. So when I think of mounting, I think like, you know, app.use slash API, and then I give it router, and then router accepts, you know, some rest.get, rest.post, rest.put. Totally. Yeah, so what a cool feature of Express is that if you create an Express app, you can treat that entire app as a middleware. You can say app.use slash app or something, and then... For the second argument, you can just give it an express app instance right. inst- instead of a middleware function. And then it'll just kind of stick that whole, it'll treat that whole app as a middleware in your higher level app. Right. So it's, it's essentially the same thing as, is virtual hosting, except that it's by path instead of by subdomain. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, and then you can even mount it at the root as well. And it's just, it's just a nice way of encapsulating error handling logic and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So uh, we've talked so far about rendering single-page apps. I think that's one interesting use case for isomorphic JavaScript, and that's what I've uh, I've done with Render. But there are are a few other like really novel use cases of this, which take advantage of the fact that you can share code between client and server. And so that that second category of apps, if the first category is single-page apps that can render on the server, second category is just really ambitious. Uh, novel use cases. And two of my favorite ones are Meteor and Asana. So have y'all heard of Asana? It's like a real-time app for task management. Yep. I have not, actually. It's pretty no, cool. I haven't either. It's pretty neat. It's founded by early Facebook people. In fact, one of the co-founders of Facebook, Dustin Moskovitz, he's featured in the social network. <laughs> Zuck's roommate back in college. But basically, that's the company that he founded with another early Facebook guy. And because they were richer than God, they could uh, spend years developing this custom tool set. So, you know, Jessica Moskowitz, he's a, a billionaire, and so they took that runway, and they basically bet the farm on running JavaScript on the server. And they started doing this before Node.js came out, which is hard to believe. So Node is, like, really young. I think it came out in 2010 or so. And so before that, the Asana team, they were working on just a, a precursor to Node called V8 CGI, which was a really naive way to bind the V8 JavaScript engine with some HTTP stuff. But long story short, they built this pretty sophisticated framework that allows them to do all this real-time, like real fancy real-time uh, syncing stuff and offline support and a lot of really neat stuff. So they actually don't do server rendering, which means that their app loads really, really slowly, but it enables this whole other approach at state management. And so if I can try to describe it, basically they have, for every single user session that they have in the browser, they spin up another process on the server, which is crazy when you think about it. They built a custom HTTP router that was stateful. Normally we think of HTTP as stateless, right? So all user requests, they can be bounced to any web server, it doesn't matter. But they actually replicate, they keep the full state of the user session on the server. So as the user will click around, and there's JavaScript views being and triggering events and data is being fetched. It'll synchronize those events with the server side, and the server will also fetch all that, and it maintains an exact copy of what the state looks like. 
and it'll execute all the views and it just throws away the HTML. Like it doesn't even look at the HTML that's generated by the views because it's just interested in having a perfect copy of the state on the server and the client. So that's, that's like a mind blowing approach to isomorphic JavaScript as well. So I know that there are naysayers to isomorphic JavaScript, and I don't know what it's about. I just see the sarcasm Twitter stream from the horse accounts, um, especially like the past <laughs> week. There's been a ton of that. Yeah. Why? Like, what's the argument against it? Like, what's the downside to sharing code? <laughs> so usually when I hear people talking about isomorphic JavaScript, I mean, I hear people talking about it like it's Mecca. You know, it's, oh, it's the only way to go. And, you know, the cost of switching between my front end and my back end, because they're both in JavaScript, is so low. And to be honest, I mean, I'm a Rails developer, and I use Angular on the front end, and I just don't feel that huge barrier between the two. The other thing is, is that I've tried to use things like Meteor and oh. and a couple of the other isomorphic, you know, or just mean stack. And there's still a barrier because there's a difference between the front end and the back end. They just work differently. And I, so you're working in different worlds, front end and back end. And so, yeah, you can share some code. You know, it's usually your business logic. You know, it's saying if you put a phone number in here, it's going to come out formatted properly. Or, you know, if you do a validation, it's going to happen the same way on the front end and the back end. And so, yeah, some of that you can share, but for the most part, the, the frameworks look different because their concerns are different. Yeah. And so I'm just, I, I'm not a naysayer on, I, I'm not against isomorphic JavaScript. I don't see the trade-offs as being a huge swing in the other direction either. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think it's a good point. I think there's a few things to address there. The first is why is there so much hate about isomorphic? And I think that by and large, it's because of the word. Um, yeah, I think a lot that, that's probably really, fair. <laughs> it's it's really, a, it's a dumb name, <laughs> for sure. I think a lot of people really don't like the name, and I bear some responsibility for that. I didn't carry, I didn't coin the term. I'll deflect that over to Charlie Robbins of Nojitsu in a blog post he wrote in 2010. But I think I've probably done more than most people to popularize the term. And so there is just this past week there was a blog post by Michael Jackson, who I think is. He's affiliated with Ryan Florence, another Utah yeah. Yeah. Uh, JavaScript developer. But he was advocating for the use of the term universal JavaScript. And that's fine. I mean, I swear, it's just one of those words. So you're saying it gets hate because it, it's like, you trying to talk too fancy, yo. Just I shut think, up. I think for the most part, people who react violently to it are the people who have been beat over the head with it. And uh, so they're not reacting because it's a bad idea. They're just reacting because they're tired of hearing about it. Okay. Okay. And then your, your second point was like, is it necessary? Are the concerns the same on the back end and front end? It's, it's so much depends on what your goals are and like what the constraints are of whatever app you're trying to build. That is very true. And there's, I like to say that isomorphic JavaScript is a spectrum. And on the one side, on the really, really simple side, you could share like just a few little bits of templates or some name formatting code or date formatting or something, right? Underscore, just share underscore. Whereas on the other side, you can sync your entire application runtime between client and server. And that's what Asana does. And that's like the most crazy, ambitious implementation I've heard of. And then you can kind of fall anywhere in between as necessary for you, right? So I think that's an important thing to remember. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think some apps are probably going to be better suited to that than others. I also don't think it solves a, an immediate pain for most app developers. So I think you'd be surprised. I mean, it's going to sneak up on you, whether or not you really realize it. We're starting to see a lot of really big companies invest heavily in it. And I think that those are on the cutting edge. And I think most app developers, to be honest, won't notice the difference, for example, in performance, because it's not a really performance-critical application. But you see... Uh, LinkedIn is about to redo their whole... So Ember, which is a famous framework that gets a lot of love and a lot of hate, they recently rebuilt their view layer to support a virtual DOM. So Handlebars is being replaced with HTML bars, which is inspired by React. And it supports server rendering. And they're calling they're branding it as Fastboot. They also hate the isomorphic term. But they're doing it with Fastboot. And so they're very quietly like embracing that. And then there's some big companies, some big public companies, I don't know if it's totally public knowledge yet, but uh, that are going to be rebuilding their whole stack on that. If you look at Yahoo, they totally rebuilt Yahoo Mail using isomorphic React and isomorphic Flux. Uh, if you look at Netflix, they're embracing it. It turns out that in their, a lot of their apps, like they have to build apps for weird devices like TVs and Roku and all these things. But it turns out even on iOS and Android, for the most part, it's a web view which is crazy to me, but it's mostly a web app in there. And they're they're actually looking at using React to do server-side rendering just so the load time is lower on their native apps. And what was the final example I wanted to use? Uh, Facebook is investing in isomorphic React. They're re- rebuilding their, their mobile web app with it. So I think that it is kind of out of reach or not a concern for your middle-of-the-road app developer who's mostly interested in like shipping features, small team, but then once, if you, once you have hundreds, thousands of developers and every 10 milliseconds is super critical to your success, then that's when you see teams investing really heavily in it. Well, if you can get it for free with something like Render, why not use it now? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. Or Ember even. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I hope that, I hope that a similar tool comes out for Angular because I've, I've wanted that, but I think Angular 1 is probably too state-heavy for that to happen. It sounds like Angular 2 is a little bit more functional of a paradigm, so maybe we'll see that. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where things go. I have to say that I'm happy to be wrong on isomorphic JavaScript as I try it out in the future, but yeah, for right now, I'm just I'm not sold. Well, good. <laughs> I'm definitely not a, I, I would never hold a gun to someone's head and be like, we're doing this in the entire nation now yeah. <laughs> about it. Because I don't think, like, to the extreme that Meteor takes it, I don't like it. But I've seen people use it where, you know, they have modules that are both an NPM and in Bower, like the phone number validation, that kind of thing. I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Well, anything else that we should cover on render before we get to the fix? The last thing I'll mention is that we're actually moving away from render to a slightly different approach, but similar. And because we're, one reason is we're ditching our separate mobile site, which is all in node, and we're going towards responsive. And our new approach is with React. And we, we actually, we're serving the, the page with Rails, but then underneath Rails, there's a little node service that's, its only responsibility is to return HTML. So we can server render our uh, React components without the full node stack. Is this Mystique that you were talking about in your talk? Oh, that is Mystique. Yep. So we've called that service Mystique, and it's based on open source components, and maybe we'll dive into that a bit more. But it uh, basically allows us to 
keep Rails as the main HTTP serving app, but then opt into rendering specific components on the server side. All right, very cool. Well, I think a lot of that's a topic for another day. But if people want to know more, if they want to ask you questions about it, how do they how do they do that? Well, there's uh, Twitter. It's always a good approach. My Twitter handle is SpikeBrem, B-R-E-H-M. And you can follow Airbnb Nerds as well. That's the engineering team. And that's probably the easiest way. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. AJ, do you have some picks for us? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> I can go if you want. All right, go ahead. Uh, so last week... Or because of the week prior, I was on vacation. I was eating not the greatest food, not healthy anyways. I went for a really good barbecue, and that was my pick last week. So this week, I'm going back to my normal diet, and I'm not only going back to my normal diet, but I'm going to try paleo. So I've been off and on with this before, but I started doing it while I was on vacation, and I felt amazing. So my pick, uh, non-programming pick this week is the paleo diet. Uh, people probably have heard of it, so... If not, check it out. You'll feel awesome if you do it. Anyways, um, and then my second pick is another uh, programming podcast. Maybe not as good as JavaScript Jabber, but it's called Programming Throwdown. Um, the website for it just does not do it justice. It's pretty awful. <laughs> uh, but the podcast itself is pretty good, so I would recommend listening to that. They just talk about... Um, they have a bunch of different stuff, but each week they go through like a different programming language. Uh, and I've just found it pretty interesting, and the guys on there are somewhat entertaining. And that's it for me. Yeah, the paleo diet's almost as controversial as uh, isomorphic JavaScript. <laughs> I really do feel incredible I by doing it. Um, I had all this free time when I was on vacation to cook all of my meals from scratch, like cut up fruits and vegetables and, you know, just eat a lot of like good meat. And I just, I felt awesome so if you have the time to do that uh it's helpful <laughs> it's cool. kind of cool to feel connected to the food chain too like <laughs> i bought butchered and ate a rabbit a while ago <laughs> and it was like it was really terrible because like as brash of a person as i am like taking life from something else to eat it it was hard <laughs> but it gave me like a lot of respect you know Poor it thumper. gave me like because i ate that rabbit and I looked in its eyes, and I killed it. Right? <laughs> but I ate it. And it gave me a lot of respect for like how we used to have to live back in the days of yore that I don't know anything about. Well, I was more focused on the fruits and vegetables, but killing a rabbit and eating it's probably good too, I guess. <laughs> Jameson killed a bunny. Poor Thumper. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've got a couple of picks here. Mainly just one. And... It's just something I've been thinking about for a little bit, so it's it's more uh, free, unsolicited advice than a pick. Yeah. Uh, but I'm fairly involved in politics. I listen to a lot of folks out there on both sides of the aisle. And one thing that I notice is that a lot of people wind up shouting about the other side. And I really just want to encourage people to not miss out on the richness that people offer, especially the people who disagree with you. So if you're a Republican, go find a Democrat and talk to him. And if you're a Democrat, go find a Republican, but also in code. I mean, if you're, if you're a staunch, you know, we should always render on the server side and you want to go talk to somebody that says that it makes sense to render on the, the client side. I mean, you know, go find out what those concerns are. Go have those conversations. I've also had interesting conversations with people I vehemently disagree with on religious topics and other topics and 
you know, it, it's helped me kind of figure out where I'm at and what I care about and refine my thinking. It, it's also helped me realize that I don't always have the answers, even though sometimes I think, oh, gee, well, that's kind of obvious. You know, somebody has a different answer and it's, it's tightly held and there's a reasonable way that they got there, you know, and, and there's some premise that I just don't, I agree with them that would get you there. So, you know, just take a minute and go talk to people that you don't have something in common with or that you know you disagree with on something and, you know, have a friendly but deep conversation about it. So yeah, yeah so that's my pick. Um, and, and I honestly, I honestly think that if we could actually do this and find the common ground, we could solve a lot of the issues that we have. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So, totally. Now, AJ, does I'm ready mean I have picks? Yeah, that's what it means. That's okay. It means. Why don't you go ahead um, and give us some picks? I'm I'm picking Chuck's pick because I I think it's absolutely awesome. I hate walking on eggshells, and I love it when people are just open and they share what they're passionate about. And I learn because I come out with like blanket statements, and then somebody else comes out and says, "Well, actually, you're wrong, and here's why, and some really good reasons." And I'm like, "Oh, cool." <laughs> 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 but <My pleasure>. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm glad you explained it well. Like I, I saw your point of view, and and I, I get it. And I, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn on that a little bit more. But SSH as a proxy, bet you didn't know. There's this thing called dynamic port forwarding, and so if you've got say a Raspberry Pi that's sitting inside your home that's connected to your router. You can use SSH as a proxy, and I'm linking to a little article that I created on how to do it, so that if you needed to access your router from home, or if you like were at some network where it was blocking the funny YouTube video you wanted to see, you can uh, use Firefox and SSH to be able to visit any web page through your home network. And likewise, I was playing around with OpenVPN, and the purpose is I'm I'm working on this home cloud system, and I need a way for like if you're in a student apartment complex or something like that, or you're taking it inside of a, an area where the network doesn't allow dynamic router configuration, that you'd still be able to give public web access to some device. And so I was able to figure out how to do that with um, with OpenVPN. And I'm still, my article isn't finished on it yet. Maybe it will be by the time this gets published, but maybe not. But it's I'm getting down that route, so I'm really excited about that too. All right. Spike, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. You guys are you guys are have broad interests. So I have to maybe expand my scope a little bit. But one point on uh, what you were saying earlier, I think that the answer is often it depends. Yeah. It's hard for people to accept. Anyway, so my first pick is something called Alt, Alt, A L T. Uh, it is a Flux implementation, and Flux is part of. It's closely related to React. It's a kind of an application pattern for uh, React. And Alt is one that was written by one of our engineers at Airbnb. It's got quite popular presence on open source. And it's just a, a very nice one that is not a lot of boilerplate. And it also supports server rendering, if you're interested in that kind of thing. And I guess my second pick would be, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get out of programming a bit. It's a band I really like called Tame Impala. You may have heard of Tame Impala. They're yeah. <laughs> Australian psychedelic rock band. They kind of sound like the Beatles if the Beatles kept playing in like the late 70s. But they've got a new record coming out soon and uh, a couple of really great singles that are just like so good. They're Australian, Australian band, and it's just very refreshing if you like psych rock. So that's that's my second pick, Tame Impala. 
They also have a song about ES6. I'll link for you. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Feels like we only go backwards, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. I love it when our guests sing to us. (laughs) I could have sang this whole thing, maybe. There we go. Next, Next time. Servers tied! Servers! Uh, no, that's death metal. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming and talking to us, Spike. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I, I like this format a lot. You guys are great. All right. Well, we will go ahead and wrap up, and we will catch everyone next week. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Braintree, so go check them out at Braintree.com. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they are a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.